0: To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support.
1: Um, what we really want is to be connected. We, we, well, I mean, let's just back up a little bit.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. to be connected to me is a layered thing it's, it's a thing that, you know, I need mean expansion
1: um, we all need expansion <laughs> so what we call spirituality I think is feeling that we're connected to something larger than the story we have going about ourselves. That we need some kind of suspension of the me narrative because it gives rise to a connection whether, and the connection's changing. It's not like one thing. It's like, the way I understand connection is it's being connected to what's happening right now. Right now. And, and most of us, we're just not there. So we need a practice so that we're here. And as soon as you go, oh yeah, because when I'm connected to what's right now, like that's God and that's the divine and that's really what's connected to the moon and the stars and Krishna consciousness. And as soon as you make all those moves, that's not it anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like We all do this all the time. It's like you have like, some deep experience and then you're like, that is like totally spiritual. <laughs> and then hopefully you've trained to see that. Oh my God, that was, why did I just do that? Why did I just say that? So being connected is not big, is really not big. Well, let's, you're going to hear, because that's I mean, what this, section five is. feels like this house of mirrors. Yeah. Like so, well, Jack just had a good point. So being connected is not being connected. So let's jump in. Let's jump in and see what happens here. Is it OK if we jump into the Dhamma mm-hmm. now? It was a long preface. <laughs> I want to combine five and six together, if that's OK. Um, do you guys want to take a turn? Like, do you want to do five and you do six?
0: Sure. Yeah. What do you think, Subuti? Can the Tathagata be seen by means of the possession of attributes? tributes? Subuti replied, no, indeed, Babagan the Tathagata cannot be seen by, the means of po- by means of the possession of attributes. And why not? What the Tathagata says is the possession of attributes is no possession of attributes.
1: That's Chuck's question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: This having been said, the Buddha told the venerable Subuti, since the possession of attributes is an illusion, Subuti, and no possession of attributes is no illusion, By means of attributes, there are no attributes the Tathagata can, indeed, be seen. (laughs) This having been said, the Venerable Subhuti asked the Buddha, Bhagavan, will there be any beings in the future, in the final epoch, in the final period, in the final 500 years of the Dharma-ending age? who give birth to a perception of the truth of the words of a sutra such as that spoken here? The Buddha said, Sabuti, do not ask, will there be any beings in the future, in the final epoch, in the final period, in the final 500 years of the Dharma-ending age, who give birth to a perception of the truth of the words of a sutra such as that spoken here? Surely, Sabuti, in the future, in the final epoch, In the final period, in the final 500 years of the Dharma-ending age, there will be fearless bodhisattvas who are capable, virtuous, and wise, who give birth to a perception of the truth of the words of a sutra such as that spoken here. Indeed, Sabuti, such fearless bodhisattvas will have honored not just one Buddha, and they will have planted auspicious roots before not just one Buddha. Surely, Subhuti, such fearless bodhisattvas will have honoured countless hundreds and thousands of Buddhas, and they will have planted auspicious roots before countless hundreds and thousands of Buddhas. In the words of a sutra such as that spoken here, they are sure to gain perfect clarity of mind. The The Tathagata knows them, Subhuti, by means of his Buddha knowledge, and the Tathagata sees them, Subhuti, by means of his Buddha vision. The Tathagata is aware of them, Subhuti, for they all produce and receive a measureless, infinite body of merit. And how so? Because, Subhuti, these fearless bodhisattvas do not create the perception of a self, nor do they create the perception of a being, a life, or a soul. Nor, Subhuti, do these fearless bodhisattvas create the perception of a dharma, much less the perception of no dharma. Sabuti, they do not create a perception nor no perception. And why not? Because, Sabuti, if these fearless bodhisattvas created the perception of a dharma, they would be attached to a self, a being, a life, and a soul. Likewise, if they created the perception of no dharma, they would be attached to a self, a being, a life, and a soul. And why not? Because surely, Subhuti, fearless bodhisattvas do not cling to a dharma, much less to no dharma. This is the meaning behind the Tathagata's saying, a dharma teaching is like a raft. If you should let go of dharmas, how much more so no dharmas."
1: Moving right along. Pretty straightforward, huh? So, three days on the Diamond Sutra. (laughs) We're at chapter six. Okay. Let's start from chapter five, because this is really interesting. Um, In the previous chapter, if you remember, there was the same rhetoric that there are attributes, but there are no attributes. The attributes are attributes that are no attributes. So on the one hand, there are no specific qualities that identify an awakened person. That's what's being said here. And on the other hand, we know that somebody who is awake has attributes. So we know this about ourselves. There's a difference between us when we're awake and there's a difference between us when we're not awake. Think about that in the last three days. There's been moments when you're totally here, unselfconsciously. And there's been times where you're not here at all. So self-conscious. Wrapped up in planning or whatever. And there's a difference between... The attributes of being awake and the attributes of not being awake. But the difference is not really that graspable. If I asked you to pinpoint it, it would be hard to understand what the difference is. Hard to put your finger on. And these are called the attributes that are no attributes. Because they're attributes, but they're no attributes. Because if you try to point your finger at what the attribute is, you can't really find it. So I would define this as radical non-self-consciousness. You try to go find yourself, and you can't find it. Have you ever tried to find yourself? Yeah. You go try to find yourself, and like you can't find it anywhere. So what the Buddha seems to be saying here is that the awakened person does not perceive in themselves any attributes that make them awakened the awakened person looks in themselves and can't find any attributes that makes them awakened so you can make efforts but you can see no awakened qualities in yourself which i guess would just be like tremendous humility Because you can't see in yourself anything that's waking up. But of course you can't see it in yourself. Because the self isn't waking up. Because by definition, your self can't get enlightened. This is a big problem. We've been on this whole path because we want to get enlightened. And now we're being told that the self can't ever really get enlightened. Because it's just a self. It's just this small, narrow construct that's just a habit. It's like this when we have relationships with teachers. If you ever study with a teacher, you should watch them very carefully. I always say this. You should. And you will start to ask yourself, are they awake? When we look on the outside at certain signs, certain attributes, we might say, they're really awake. And then other times we might say, I'm not so sure. And then when we try and put our finger on it, well, what is it that makes them awake? We can't really say because they're attributes that are no attributes. Everything that you can identify, that we can identify, in spiritual teachers that we love, is almost entirely our projection. It's almost entirely our projection. If you're a Zen student and you learn koan practice, you will look at spiritual teachers through the lens of your koan practice. If you're a meditator who studies concentration, you'll look at the behavior of your teacher through the lens of how concentrated they seem. If your practice is bhakti yoga, you will look at your teacher by how generous and loving they are. It's all our projection. If someone's awake, how can you tell? If you're awake, how can you tell? I'm going to add something that's more complicated, which is that if being awake means that the light's a little brighter, then that means that you walk into the room, and there's a dimmer switch on the wall. And you practice for a little while, and you turn up the dimmer. And then the room's a little brighter. But this is terrible, because now you can see all the scratches everywhere, more people's details. (laughs) And then you keep practicing, and then it gets brighter. And the brighter it gets, the more that it reveals. So although someone might think from the outside, oh, that person is becoming more awake, from the perspective of that person, it's actually worse. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much worse because there's so much more to look at. You see, it's terrible. It's really terrible. You know, uh, I was reading this article about uh, what happened in New England when um, the middle class finally got light bulbs in their houses. And it's a really interesting story. The the middle class in New England got light bulbs, and when they got light bulbs, people became extremely self-conscious about having friends over because their furniture wasn't so nice. When you don't have uh, electricity, um, everything's kind of dim. It's kind of like most of our apartments, you know. It's like things look okay. But then, as soon as you like, move into a nicer place, suddenly like, your furniture looks really bad. right? And also, everyone's houses were dirty. So suddenly, people had to get housekeepers, spend more time cleaning, go out and buy new furniture. Why? Because it's brighter. And it made them more self-conscious. So interesting, isn't it? The last uh, insight here is that um, by definition being awake means that uh, you're awake with no self and no core. So how could there be a self that sees that you're awake? Mm -hmm. The whole definition of being awake is there isn't a self in the background that's talking to yourself. Oh, I'm awake now. You see, being awake is a break from the self in the background that's saying, oh, I'm this, I'm that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that is like, it's so annoying, this self all the time. Isn't it annoying being a self? There's nothing more annoying. You don't know anyone more annoying than you. (laughs) You are the most annoying person. So, when we're sitting still, we're breathing and breathing and breathing and breathing and breathing until once in a while, this self that's always blabbering away, that you used to think was a distraction, now you start to see it's yourself that's blabbering away all the time, starts to have a break, and then there's just breathing. There's just breathing. And it's not happening to anybody. It's just breathing. There isn't anybody that's breathing. And then as soon as that happens, the self then comes back again and tries to make something of it, itself again. So you have to start again with the dimmer switch, turning it on, brightening things up a little bit. Anyways, the Buddha says all this to Subhuti. And then Sabuti's still totally confused. Um, and then Sabuti says, but the era is getting worse. Does anybody feel this way? Yeah. The era is getting worse. For sure there will be fewer Buddhas. Will we still have any people who can teach this stuff? Because there are dark ages coming. And the Buddha reassures him and says, uh, even in the dark ages, Sabuti, even when things get bad. There will still always be beings who are capable of understanding and compassion and fearlessness. And once again, just to underline, fearless bodhisattvas always goes together. So that despite all our human difficulties and our distractions, and our increasing distractions, and our lack of discipline and our increasing lack of discipline we have a human birthright a blessedness, a trust from the beginning that we can be awake it's like a natural resource that we all share that the Buddha knows you the Buddha sees you the Buddha hears you, and the Buddha is always there, because the Buddha is not separate from you. When you sit, you don't take up this posture to look like that. Oh, is there anything back there today? He got this from the squat that we were doing this morning. One handed. It turns out in the end that the Buddha is just the power of good that's inside of us. When we just settle down, So let's sum up a little bit. The point is not whether you have a self or you don't have a self. That is for academics. There has been more written about no self than any other Buddhist theory. There's like whole journals where all they debate is whether you do or don't have a self. No one's figured it out yet. But the issue is not whether you have or don't have a self. The issue that the Buddha is trying to bring forward here is grasping. Grasping to a me. That grasping is painful. That grasping is exhausting. And that grasping is unsatisfying. When you become a nun, or a monk, you shave your head and the ritual is you hold a lock of hair and you just meditate on the lock of hair. Think about how much time you've spent contemplating your next hairstyle. Maybe that's what you've been doing during the meditation for the past (laughs) three days. How much time have you spent in your life? Everyone just think about that now for a minute. (laughs) Just contemplating like what you're going to do with your hair. And then you just cut it all off. A few weeks ago, I was in London. Did I tell you that also? Before I was in New York, I was in London. No, I was in London. My, my wife, Karina, um, she ha- has been growing her hair really long. Yeah, it's been like really exciting for her to grow her hair. Um, it's not my favorite, but. Um, I'm a bit more into like, dikey haircuts. So anyways, she, she grew her hair really long and it's been driving her crazy. Because, like, you know, she's like taking care of kids. Um, she's got to, like, make her hair do things, you know? Um, anyways, it's been bugging her a lot. Anyways, so in the morning we have this ritual where she FaceTimes me in the morning. I was in England and she FaceTimed me and I woke up and I picked up the phone. She shaved all her hair off. She had no hair. She just she woke up in the morning and she's like, fuck it.
0: <laughs>
1: she just took her, my clippers and she just shaved it all. Yeah, yeah. Like very Sinead O'Connor kind of style, yeah. So I pretended it was great. And um, the message of this sutra is that all grasping makes us unhappy, and that at the core of all grasping is grasping for a self. And that the opposite happiness seems to be when we're not grasping so much and we're going to die. So what are you holding on to? We're hanging on and clutching for something that we can't grasp. And so it makes us suffer. That's the message about grasping, is that the thing you're grasping, you can't actually grasp. You can't ever win. It's not graspable. Because it has no core. It has no self. If there's an identity you're trying to grasp, it's not graspable, not just from your side, but from its side, It doesn't exist, you see. But whatever, we just keep doing it. So we have to keep practicing. And in early Buddhism, one of the core teachings, many of you have studied this, is that we just need more discipline. We need more discipline to stop, and all we need to do is practice renunciation. So take all that stuff and just stop grasping for it. I have a, a student who studies with Thich Nhat Hanh, and Thich Nhat Hanh said to her, you just have to have no desires. Just don't have any desires. So that's very much like an early Buddhist vision, is just drop everything, don't own stuff, don't have desires. Very renunciate practice.
0: That's very different from what uh, that that fellow said. Well, this is different from what what the Diamond
1: Sutra is about to say. The Diamond Sutra is saying something a little bit more subtle. So the Diamond Sutra is saying, okay, you did all this training. You're learning how to let go. You're learning how to not grasp so much. uh, But there's one more uh, step, which is if you still think, that there's a self, and you still think that there are others or a world, then you're still holding on. In other words, there's nothing to renounce. Because because all that stuff that you thought you had to let go of, well, it doesn't even really exist. So you need to just recognize how things really are. And this culminates in a very famous story, which is an early story, and we'll end with this, uh, is a story of the Buddha, which is the story of the raft. Which is, um, the Buddha gives this incredible teaching where he says that the Dharma, so Dharma in this context refers to the teaching. So he said the Dharma, all the Buddha's teachings, are like a raft. Um, The raft is made from twigs, okay, from sticks, and from mud. In other words, the raft is made from whatever you've got. And you use the raft, the dharma, the teachings, to cross the river to the other shore. That's the purpose of the raft. When you get to the other shore, you should abandon the raft. The raft is not for holding on to very beautiful teaching of the Buddha. He's saying, all my teachings are a raft to help you cross the river. They're not holy, because they're just made up of all the stuff you've got around, mud and sticks, whatever you've got. You use the teachings to cross the shore, and you abandon them. And in the larger sutta, this comes from, he asked, I don't know if any of you have studied it, but he asks all these other great questions like, Would you take a raft and haul it up on your shoulder and carry it around? You know, it's like that. If you get here on a bicycle, do you take the bicycle in here and put it beside your mat? No. You lock up your bike and you leave. Or if you're like a diamond sutra person, you abandon it. (laughs) So. How this section ends is that practice shifts from a moral act, which is renunciation, to a metaphysical commitment, which is to start to see there are no separate things out there. There's no separation in here. So that graspability starts to dissolve, and our imagination is stretched. not to fix things. Let's just personalize that a tiny bit more. Imagine you have created a way of living with your partner that's totally different than your family of origin. Has anybody done this? Jack's the only one. As long as you insist on creating a life that's totally different from your family of origin you're bound up with your family of origin you see? another form of grasping if you have an eccentric life that has uh, that is not a reaction to your family of origin then it's just your life you see but if you have a life that's a conscious attempt at being different than your family of origin, then you're bound up with your family of origin. So you need to open your hands and just accept your life as it is. This is what the text seems to be saying. Don't be pushed by the past. Don't fight with the past. Just feel what's happening for you moment to moment. So easy, isn't it? So, I'll stop here. Let's take five minutes for questions and then we'll have a little break and then do some more practices.